Nemo later on is like, you know, a character like Ned, he's basically a storybook hero. Sure. But he does a, he, he does one small act of heroism in one moment, and in the next moment he might undo it. And he's like, good only really matters if it's like a, a consistent effort over time on bigger scales. And then the professor says something like, oh, you just want perfectionism. And it's like, no, actually, he's kind of making some points, you know, like uh, let Nemo cook here a little bit. He's onto something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let Nemo cook. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to episode 280 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Richard Fleischer's 1954 film, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 20,000 written out as a number, by the way, as opposed to... T-T-W. Let, yeah, yeah, T-W, which was I, how I tended to see the book. Um, I don't know what the official one is, though, because I think I've seen the number for the book as well doesn't matter but it's just weird that there's not like a consistency to that yeah um, but maybe maybe they did the number for the movie to try and differentiate it but then over time it like got associated with the book as well maybe i mean there's a couple of things we talked about last week that are associated with the book that that maybe you had cultural osmosis through the film i think so also surprise disney movie um, yeah. I didn't know this was a Disney movie until I turned it on and, and it popped up and I went, oh, shit, Disney. So neither did I. I didn't do a lot of looking into this while we were reading the book last week. And I found out this is a for me to have not seen this is kind of a big deal because of yeah. sort of where it stands in cinema history. Um, and I'll get a little bit into that. I bet, man. I had so many uh, questions about like behind the scenes, how things were done, um, which can really shows that I'm starting to become more of a geek for like how filmmaking goes you know um I'm, i was just really curious about a lot of stuff and then i'm like some of it i'm like afraid to find out because some of that shit looked really dangerous um we'll get into it like there's so many stunts but like like special effects wise i was pretty blown away with how ambitious this was and then even today there's like stuff that i'm like man they don't even go this hard today and, and you know what i mean like they went really yep. hard great set design um especially like in the nautilus itself I thought it looked incredible. Like it, it's it was a really interesting movie in a lot of ways. Um, you know, clearly very dated. It's a very of its time movie, the same way that the book is a very of its time book. Um, and so it's interesting, right, to see it adapted so many years later. Um, and and they managed to, even though it's you know ostensibly a, like a, a period piece, right, because they talk about the 19th century. So it theoretically set sometime in the 1800s. Um, but it felt very of its time to me still, like it's like what it gets into the philosophical questions towards the end of the movie um, felt very 1950s to me. There were definitely some relics of the time, some things that that made me realize like, ooh, this this maybe would have held up a little better if it if, you know, certain things were removed or, or were done differently. But, you know, it's time capsule of that of that period. Yeah. yeah, I'm totally with you. There's definitely some some controversial scenes that I would have had removed. But I, I was actually just talking about like. Pacing the and the concerns of the time. Oh, I, I see, felt yeah. like um, nuclear, uh, the threat of nuclear power, the threat of nuclear bombs, which was very present in the 50s, right? Because this would have been right after totally um, World War II. That was the undercurrent I was picking up in this film as it, they're talking about scientific advancement and the danger it poses to humanity. And that's not really in the 18. 70 novel right like uh, it's yeah. more of just like we're all super excited about scientific advancement now all of a sudden you know it's like oh that maybe we're not ready for it 
there's a little bit of Nemo sort of saying like, you know, you don't want this to fall into the wrong hands, even in the book. But yes. it was very clear to me, you know, having just seen Oppenheimer, I'm sure, every, you know, everybody in the world went and saw it. And uh, it was very present when they started talking about like, oh, the, it's run by a specific power. And he gives him that mask that he puts on to look down into the power yeah, source. Yeah, that was a wild was like, moment. Holy shit. Like, <laughs> that's definitely what they were going for. So just to get into it, we've, we've covered Wizard of Oz and we knew the technique of Technicolor, right? Like Technicolor is still, what, 20 years old at this point? So it's okay. still pretty novel to see something in color like this. And this movie does a great job of using color in that set design and everything that, you know, there's these amazing locations. But what this film also utilizes is CinemaScope, which is kind of the grandfather of what we know as the modern aspect ratio in films that we go to see in movie theaters. Okay. Um, so, so CinemaScope is two point, what we kind of considered normal in movie theaters is 2.39 or 239 to one. Um, which is a wide screen format. And before this, they were using something called Academy Ratio, which was one, three, seven, five to one. So you're almost doubling the, the width of your frame. And that okay, was in order to draw people, audiences who were watching things on television in the 50s into the theater. They're giving them a different experience. And this is specifically one of Disney's first CinemaScope, but also one of the first CinemaScope films that was released. So this is like the, the beginning of a trend of, a larger than life screen that you can't get anywhere else. Now, obviously the silver screen and the and the theater was always like that because it was such a large screen. But with people, the advent of television and people in their homes watching these square boxes, they were like, well, let's think about how human beings view film and just see the world we see in widescreen format. We have these this peripheral vision that allows yeah. us to see wider. So so that encompasses a lot more of your view and obviously it caught on. And like I said, today, it's kind of the the norm. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was Speaking of Oppenheimer, the whole thing was about how wide it was and that 70 millimeter and uh, making like I went and saw it in 70 millimeter for that reason. I will fully admit I don't I don't fully understand all yeah. the technicalities of it. I've just been told it's cool. It's big. Let's see it in that version. And I'm like, all right. Well, and it's also nice. Like if you have the opportunity to see something projected in film today, it's kind yeah. of novel and nice. And, and there's something, you know, timeless about that. I don't know where we were at in the history of Disney, but I'm sure that would also be a topic in and of itself. But yeah. this, this felt like this like high flying adventure movie. It I, I felt like uh, Indiana Jones. I, I was seeing a lot of like the bones of Indiana Jones were like in this movie. You know, it, it, it felt like the modern precursor to a big budget actiony adventure movie. Live sort of action. in the vein of like those Errol Flynn films that people, the sword and the, a lot of sword play and, and adventures and swinging on things. Yeah. But like specifically with Disney, right? Like where it's like, we see where Disney is now. I look back at this and I'm like, this is an early indication of things to come. Yeah. So this kind of movie. Disney was known for animation at this time, right? Right. Like we've talked about in quite a few yeah, of those. But... All my other Disney reference from this era is a lot of like either some musicals, maybe like 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 uh, live action musicals or like animated films. Right. I didn't know when they started making movies like this. Yeah. And this kind of was the beginning of that as well. So there's a lot that goes into this with Walt Disney's involvement, and he's the one who expressed interest in doing another adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea because this wasn't the first adaptation of the work. Um, okay. But we can we can circle back to some of that just to put a bow on this for now. Uh, we talked about sort of the large scale of the film at the time. It was the most expensive and ambitious in Hollywood up to that point. It was nine million dollars for the entire production cost. And that kind of ebbed and flowed like the production went pretty a pretty long time. 
we'll talk about some of those reasons, but that's a, the equivalent of about a hundred million dollars today. Yeah, it is money. That that is a lot. For the time, what they were spending was was really high. And you know, we wow. today people spend two hundred fifty million, but yeah. it's just a different time culturally. Yeah, like you these didn't. Things they money. didn't used to spend that much money on movies. Right. That's that's a, that's interesting, and you could see that, man. Like like I said, like you can see the way this would have been expensive. A lot of it was was done for real is the way you know you could tell uh, and i was like wow I, I don't know how they pulled a lot of this stuff off i'm curious because like, it just as a moviegoer movie fan uh, how did you how did you enjoy watching this i actually love this movie i like there are there are th like specifically one major thing that i think holds it back for me but other than that i was like pretty blown away by how much i enjoyed the film by how it was like well propelled the set design the effects the way that it, they made it feel like an adventure they captured a lot of the essence of like individual journeys kind of building up to this larger journey with nemo and then they made some decisions with some of the characters that i thought were strong for one ned while still being sort of the stereotypical action hero in, in a lot of ways is more likable because he's not murdering every animal that he sees <laughs> um so that's like one one major change for him he's, but he's an interesting one man because um he's like the most sexist I, in the film I possibly yeah i think um how, whether or not you like ned will affect how much you like this movie yeah because he's clearly put, put up as like the person you're supposed to like the most he's kind of that like um like a prototype of a hero character that we're going to see time and again, sort of a fish out of water, kind of an everyman who's now thrown into this fantastical situation. Um, he is a total like playboy, supposedly. Um, you know, he's he's supposed to be charming and charismatic. Um, and if, if that charm and charisma works on you, I think it, it's going to land really well. Um, for me, like it was, it was, it kind of missed. I don't know. It, it, I didn't hate him, but like, this kind of guy is just never someone I really liked. Um, and he didn't show me enough else to make me like him. It was an interesting performance. And by the way, Kirk Douglas, yeah. which I had to look it up because I was like, is that? And sure enough, Michael Douglas's father. Yeah, I'm surprised you had to look that up. That's, I, yeah. I, 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 I was like, is this? And I had to look it up and I was like, and then you see it and you're like, yeah, they, they look very similar. And he's doing like this like Popeye routine, basically. Like Pretty much, he, yeah. Man of action. It's catering to, to, in my opinion, it's catering to the like post-war sort of back from the front lines. And, totally. And then like the very 50s sexist look at the world of like, you know, the way they talk about women. And the, the idea at the time was that I'm just going to constantly talk about all the women I've slept with and want to sleep with. And really objectify them. But if I do it with like a smile and a wink and a nudge and it's a bunch of guys like in the scene and we all laugh about it, it's charming. It's supposed to be. I think at the time it was, I'm less convinced today it is. Um, sure. So yeah. for me, like, and that, but that's not all. Like he's just also kind of too much. Yeah. But um, like you said, and, he's a character to her, like to, to where he's almost like overacting. I didn't really believe him as like a person. I'm like, this guy is, this guy is like a, a, an idea almost like an American ideal of, of, of a man, which is also kind of gross to think about, but like it did feel like this is what America yeah. wants to be. I can look at this movie too. And we talk about this all the time where we have to look at it like historians almost and say like, this is, I can understand this catering to a large demographic of people in the fifties, yeah. including women that were, you know, cause society was weird then. And, and sure, totally this is Attitudes like the, the, the man, the man that maybe some of the women were looking for in the, in the audience. And, as yeah. fucked up as that is and patriarchal and all the other things that we know that it's like yeah. wrong now. But I know that he Kirk Douglas also had involvement uh, in his character in some of the scenes. 
and he wanted at this time he was kind of in his prime he wanted to be seen as like the it man he wanted yeah. he wanted to make sure that like he didn't come off so i think maybe between that and disney's involvement is probably where ned stops killing as many animals possibly <laughs> but then but then adding in sort of like the ladies man uh, everybody wants to be him everybody wants to be with him kind of thing yeah uh, was probably some kirk douglas and again this is a prototype of a character that we've continued to see it evolves over time but like we see this character time and again. And Kirk Douglas also known for some legendary movies in, in you know, film history. He was Spartacus. He was also in Paths of Glory, which is a Kubrick film that at some point we could possibly cover. Oh, wow. Um, and I know he's like, you know, multi-time Academy Award winner and, and nominated figure. And he was the last remaining um, member of this cast. He passed away in 2020 at the age of 103. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, good for him. That's... Uh... Yeah, making it over 100. Wow. Yeah. Um, hard for men to do in particular. Um, good for him. I mean, I also recognize, I think it's Peter Lorre. Is, is oh, how you yeah. say the name? He looked very familiar. And then I, I, I just like glanced at some of his stuff. And I'm like, oh, he was a Bond villain at one point. And like, he was in the Maltese Falcon. Maltese Falcon, okay. one of the most famous film noir, kind of set off film noir as a genre, yeah. too, especially over here in the States. Um, Which, by the was, way, I like a lot of the changes they made with Kinsey. We'll get into. But like, yeah. I, I thought he was a lot fundamentally more interesting in this yeah. version. And then to talk about Peter Lorre and not talk about M, which is Fritz Lang's like Weimar era uh, German film that has it's super haunting. I mean, like you see him, he's like the ultimate. You sound villain like such a era. film nerd right now. <laughs> I'm sure. But he's he's the ultimate villain from this era. And he even went on to say about this movie, he said that the squid got cast in the role that he normally is because um, he is like known as as a villain of this era. And, and that yeah. character that he plays in M is kind of like this like serial killer that's abducting little girls and stuff and like the certain wow. music plays and it's i mean it's like the stuff of legend he's like he's got kind of film. a i can see why he'd be typecast as a villain he's got kind of a creepy look to him so yeah you know i can see that um yeah man i so just in general like i had an okay time watching it i i was taken with a lot of the um special effects they were able to pull off um the look of it was really good you know i didn't i didn't necessarily love some of the character choices but I will fully grant that, like, it was an exciting version of the story. It was engaging in that way. You know, things are dated, but it, it's okay. Like, if I if I watch it of two minds and I try and shut up my, like, modern self a little bit and just go in as an archaeologist watching this old movie, uh, I enjoy it for that reason. So, like, I, yeah, I had a mostly good time with this. I, I felt like it went on a little long. Length, to me, always comes down to, like, how much am I enjoying the experience? Because if I'm, if I'm loving the experience, I won't comment on length. I think expectation is huge here for me for for like sort of where I landed. I I didn't know much of what to expect. I sh I yeah. guess I should have. This is kind of a gap in my in my knowledge here. I was pretty blown away. I was in terms of like the, a lot of the technical stuff that they were pulling off, yeah. the set design, and the adventures. I got caught up. You know, what, like even even though I think Ned is a flawed character in this. Even things like him interacting with the seal, I thought was, was like cute. really, really funny. That, and that, like, that I, seal was so well trained. That was very cool. Real seal in the scene, just with these actors. Kind of magical film stuff that I was getting caught up in. And like, yeah. there's a, again, there's a certain scene that I think kind of almost soured the entire movie for me. But yeah. outside of that, there is, I think there's a lot of cool stuff going on. And I got to talk about James Mason, who plays Nemo. I thought yeah. Nemo had kind of the best role in this movie. He He got to like. He got a lot of range as a character. He got to show a lot. I feel like it was it was a kind of character we hadn't seen a lot up to this point of like, he's kind of the villain of the movie, mm -hmm. yet he's also 
kind of the protagonist of the movie. He ends up dying at the end. Um, uh, and he like, yeah, he, he's gone through this whole journey where, where we're like, oh, he maybe he was too ambitious or something. But like, you are, are kind of feel bad for him in the end, I think. And, and mm-hmm. you're, you're supposed to kind of... Uh, identify with his genius in, in some way and recognize it at least it's kind of he has like a turning point where i think he goes from interesting villain to kind of more sympathetic and and yeah that yeah. that plays through and and then the change i think it's an interesting change because you know i guess jules verne probably knew he was going to reuse this character and wasn't done here but like to make the choices that happen later, in this but, film yeah yeah, to make the choices that actually happen in this film, make it feel like a more well-rounded story to where I was like, there's definitely a yeah. finite end and a morality, like more of a morality to it and more cohesive, I would say, because in the in the book, it did like feel segmented like we talked about last week. Yeah, it was fun. And I hope I'm not coming across like saying this movie, th- this movie was definitely fun. I can see a lot of blueprints of modern films. And I think it was like it was good enough to where like it jumped up into a place where I am kind of comparing it to other yeah. great action adventure films. I'm not like putting it in its own category. I'm, I'm kind of comparing it to like Indiana Jones and shit like that because it's of that quality. Um, and that's where I'm like, yeah, it's probably not gonna be one of my favorites, but it was still, it was still a good time. And like, I can recognize that a lot of what came after, I think owes stuff to this movie less so as we've gone through the podcast but like older films i i know for a fact that you were like oh this is an older film i'm gonna put this in its own box and and sort of like identify it as that and and like not compare it to other especially movies that like you go back to like yeah if it's like 50s or before um i i often can struggle but you you have definitely shown me some films that countered that and and made me rethink that but so this kind of um, surprises you as a film from 1954 you would say yeah, I wouldn't, you know, if I'd just seen this in isolation, I don't know, maybe there's a certain look to it that makes you think it's Technicolor or whatever that is. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's hard to place this in the 50s because the effects are actually pretty damn good. Yeah. Which I, I'm, I'm excited to hear about the behind the scenes stuff. So maybe we yeah. should, let's move along. Let's move into it. Okay, so uh, not behind the scenes yet, but let's talk about Richard Fleischer, who is the director. He's an American film director whose career spanned more than four decades, beginning at the height of the golden age of Hollywood and lasting through the American new wave. Though he directed films across many genres and styles, he is best known for his big budget tentpole films, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Vikings, Fantastic Voyage, the musical film Dr. Doolittle, the war epic Tora Tora Tora, the dystopian mystery thriller Soylent Green, and... The Robert E. Howard Sword and Sorcery films, Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja. Wow, which, by the way, um, one of our listeners had, like kept mentioning that we need to cover Conan. So that's one that we might at some point actually tackle. But I was like, I'm familiar with a lot of these movies, but like, I don't know if I've sat down and watched any of them all the way through. Yeah, Fantastic Voyage and oh, Soylent Green. You haven't seen Soylent Green? No, nope, you heard know, it referenced a million I was times. Say, but you've I heard about not, it. I've heard of all about it, but I've yeah. never actually watched that movie. Conan the Destroyer, I'm a little surprised too with Ar- with Arnie. Like you, that's yeah. that's definitely one I thought um, like you would have seen in the 80s. Maybe I did see that growing up. That one I yeah. might have seen all the way through when I was young. I didn't realize this was a director with that like expansive uh, body of work. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, to to tackle that many genres too, like especially, and that's something else that was striking me. I was like, this is just good sci-fi for this era. Like 54, yeah. you start you look at this and you start to think about other filmmakers being inspired. You think of like you know. Spielberg even like someone he's he's watching films like this yeah. and some I mean if before. you make Jaws you know 20 years later you're mm-hmm. definitely looking at this movie this had to and be the biggest budget underwater uh, yeah un, like water-based movie up to that point right 
the technology that I've hinted at some too between Technicolor and you know the, the formatting of the film, but they're also filming underwater, which is incredibly difficult to do. I've I've done some yeah. underwater filming and I can't I even I imagine what it would be like <laughs> with film film reels. Like it's much easier with digital. There are so many scenes of people actually walking around underwater, yes. you know, in gear and yeah. you see the bubbles and you're like, that's real. They must have like they're pioneering this. Borrowed a freaking aquarium or something because yeah. there was a lot of like wildlife in a lot of these scenes. They're filming in in Jamaica. They're filming all over the place in actual underwater environments. Um, but there's there's a lot to get be into. Incredibly with that. dangerous. <laughs> but to get back to what you were saying with with Jaws, like you know, you're filming underwater for Jaws as well. Some similar yeah. things that were pioneered maybe in this. Well, film. and all the ship stuff. Like there was a lot of like ship to ship stuff. Like model real, work. Real. Yeah. Oh, tons of model work. Yeah. I was just thinking a lot about like when people talk so much about the special effects of something like Star Wars, and you look at this, and you're yeah. like, this is sci-fi. Look at the model work. Look at the special effects of the time in the 50s. This is 20 years before. Yeah. Star Wars would come out. They were doing some really good work with like convincing the viewer that they're in a submarine because they would look out these windows and you would see like what was clearly like some sort of projection or something yep. on the other side. But then they would do reverse shots where you're outside looking in through that window and they were like casting that like like, you know, blue water light onto them to to sell that like this has an inside and an outside. You know what I mean? If you only saw one of those, you would probably be less sold that you're actually in a submarine. Right. So it's clever. So Fleischer worked with many of the top Hollywood stars of the time. He was noted for his versatility, able to work in almost any genre under wildly varying conditions and budgets, making him a popular and prolific choice for producers. Though Fleischer was never considered an auteur and was not a highly acclaimed artist, many of his films proved very financially and critically successful, winning accolades and being some of the highest grossing features of their respective release years. Interesting. I wonder if, if that was like some sort of elitism, people looking at it and going, oh, this is this is too broad an audience or something. Like, sure. I, yeah. I, but that's that. There, there are directors like that today where it's like, you know, you're going to come in. People say like, oh, you're not on a tour. The style isn't recognizable enough because they can be a chameleon and kind of mm. match any other people's voices. And I think that in some cases can be harder because it's showing more range. And we love an auteur on this podcast. Don't get us wrong. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. Like that's it's also equally fascinating to study those types of filmmakers. And knowing one other thing makes Richard Fleischer being the director really, really interesting. So so Fleischer was surprised at being considered for the director's chair for the film as he was the son of Disney's biggest competitor, Max Fleischer, who is famous for animating, being the animator and creator of Betty Boop. So there's some of those other cartoon inspired and animated inspired things that he created. And then his son is, hand, is pretty much handpicked by Walt Disney. Richard Fleischer approached Walt Disney to inquire if Disney knew who he was. Disney told him that he was well aware of who he was and hired him because he thought he was the best man for the job. Richard Fleischer also asked his father if he minded having his son work for his rival, but Max Fleischer made no objection and even asked Richard to tell Disney that he thought he had made an excellent choice for his director. Mm. So I don't know, kind of interesting and cool thing to see like competitors cool, man. coming together like that. Uh, let's talk about the production of it and sort of how it came about. How did Disney end up Really you know, curious. adapting a Jules Verne novel. He first expressed interest after seeing marine footage and storyboards created by Harper Goff during the production of True Life Adventure series. So they actually went underwater and they were shooting large format underwater, which again, mm -hmm. large format for the time is already amazing, but seeing large format underwater footage is a totally different world that a lot of people yeah. haven't seen on film before. Totally. 
So they're, after seeing that, they were like, oh, let's do an underwater film. And then they start to look into what's popular and what's a yeah. you know, huge story. They find 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And like I said, there was another adaptation. At the time, the rights were owned by MGM and King Brothers Productions. Uh, Goff storyboards and art designs formed the film's basis, but he was not credited because he was not a member of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, IATSE, in other words, which I'm actually a member of. Um, oh, wow. So it's really unfortunate to see because this film would go on to win Best Art Direction and he would not be able to, even though he worked this closely on all of the design that we see, he was not able to accept his Academy Award based on unions and, and some of the, the, the things of the time. So unfortunate. Oh, it looked great. So, yeah. Yeah. Credit to him. Again, I just want to make sure that he gets his due. It was filmed at various locations in the Bahamas and Jamaica. Other scenes were photographed in Nassau, Lyford Cay and Death Valley. Filming began in January of 1954, and the scenes in San Francisco at the beginning were filmed at Universal Studios, while most of the modeling shots were done at 20th Century Fox. Remember I said that this film was really expensive and it expanded yeah. a long production period of time. Wow, that's a Some lot of locations. Lo well, for Disney to get in bed with Universal Studios and 20th Century Fox, those are competitors and they're using their studio spaces for some of this stuff. So that's how massive the production of this film was for the time period that they were running out of stages to, to film this on. Uh, some of the location filming sequences were so complex that they required a technical crew of more than 400 people. The production presented many other challenges as well. The famous giant squid action sequence had to be entirely reshot as it was originally filmed as taking place at dusk and in a calm sea. The sequence was filmed again, this time taking place at twilight and during a humongous thunderstorm, both to increase the drama and to better hide the cables and other mechanical workings yeah. of the animatronic squid. I was going to say, like, I, I think the rain and the, the chaos here is doing doing a lot of work to hide uh, hide things like that, so that, the cables and all kinds of stuff. That totally makes yeah. sense. And supposedly that was Disney's idea to change it to nighttime, by the way. And you never know what's legend at this point and what's myth okay. and rea real. But supposedly that was his idea to change it to night. But uh, there's another story that says it was possibly the screenwriter Earl Fenton who came up with the idea. Regardless, okay. one way or another, it was reshot and it looked great at night and they were able to hide a lot of that. Um, another thing I read with the model work and some of the mechanical stuff that they were using is when the ship crashes into the reef at one point there's like bubbles mm -hmm. coming up and some of those bubbles were actually hand animated like using animation to wow. cover up cabling that was in there so so some of the time they're kind of using the animation department that they have at disney as well in live action in in subtle ways that'll it's almost like early cg to cover things yeah, up yeah that's clever man yeah so moving into the plot itself in 1868 rumors spread of a sea monster attacking ships in the pacific ocean professor arnox and his assistant Conseil are asked to investigate and soon board a U.S. Conseil. Navy frigate. Conseil. They are joined by cocky master harpoon Ned Land. After months of patrolling, a monster is spotted. The frigate's gun crew open fire, but the monster turns and rams the warship. Ned, Conseil, and Aronox are thrown overboard while the disabled frigate drifts away, unable to respond to their cries for help. While clinging to the wreckage, Aronox and Conseil come upon a metal vessel and realize the monster is a man-made submerging boat that appears deserted. Below decks, Aronax finds a large viewport and witnesses an underwater funeral while Ned Land arrives on an overturned longboat. Spotted by the divers, they attempt to leave in the righted longboat but are captured. The vessel's captain introduces himself as Captain Nemo, master of the Nautilus. 
He returns Ned and Kansai to the deck while offering Aranax, whose name he recognizes the chance to stay after Aranax proves willing to die with his companions. As the ship submerges, Nemo allows Ned and Kansai to remain aboard. So this movie starts with a book opening. <laughs> it's like 20,000 mm-hmm. leagues from the sea. It opens up chapter one and you literally like read the opening chapter of the real book. Yeah. Um, and I was laughing because I was like, we don't see that much in the in, in the adaptations we cover. Um, it'd be funny if they did if they started doing that in different adaptations, you know? Just yeah. open up the book. Let's read the first chapter together. All right, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's very storybook, like fairy tale yeah. kind of Disney stuff, right? Like we have seen that in their animated True. stuff. I think Well, and that... I guess Jules Verne at the time was already a bit of a legend, right? Exactly. Like he was he was a yeah. big name and this was a story a lot of people probably grew up reading. So um there's an established IP there that they're leaning on. Um, it was interesting, right? And then you get into it, we get all our characters introduced. We see um, Professor Aranax, who he's kind of a, a fuddy-duddy throughout. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I didn't really know what to make of him. He he engages with Nemo on an intellectual level, I guess, um, which is what he does in the book. I did like that the sort of manservant that, you know, Kinsei was instead changed into an apprentice who's like ostensibly learning from him. He was still very subservient to him, but it seemed like a little bit more, um, there was a little bit of conflict throughout with them, uh, you know, a bit as, as Kinsei is like drawn to Ned Land and his, you know, magnetism, I guess. And then, Ned, uh, you know, speaking of Ned Land, he shows up, uh, you know, a woman in either arm. She's larger than life from the jump. Um, police are like chasing him at one point. He gets thrown in the mud and he runs back over to the women and grabs them again. And they're all like, Ooh, you know, mm-hmm. he's just like this guy, man. Um, and then, you know, he, he, he's a harpooner by trade. And you're like, <laughs> what? I don't know. It's interesting. Um, and then he, get, he, he's on the ship with them. Right. And he's the only one who's wearing this like striped shirt. He takes his shirt off a lot in this movie. Yeah. Um, so you could tell that he was kind of a sex symbol of the time. Um, and then, and then we get the musical sequence that I did not see coming. He gets the guitar out and he's, he just has yeah. a whole whole thing, a whole breakdown on the deck where he's singing about all these different women and comparing them to like fish and stuff. Um, wiggling his butt at the sailors. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those moments <laughs> like, where I'm sure that people of the time found this song funny. Yeah. And, you know, he charming, I guess, if you're a guy, wish fulfillment kind of thing. It's, this is a certain but, kind of like shanty song that you would hear, I guess. Sure. Yeah. A little more sexist <laughs> than the ones that I've heard. But yeah, I'm sure yeah. there was. I mean, there were ones like this. I'm, I'm sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this this is one of those times where it, where I was surprised that it broke into song. I was like, okay, yeah. Disney movie, I guess we need a musical number. Yeah, I was surprised too. You wouldn't be surprised to hear that this, you know, sold a bunch of records and people loved the song for the time period and became kind I mean, of it iconic was for catchy, the movie. You know, um, it became his recurring song too. Like he plays it some more later. I think there were some mm-hmm. musical cues that followed a, a similar tone. So it kind of became his theme song. Right. Um, yeah. And then we get the whole sequence where the, we first see the Nautilus and like, I mean, we I guess we saw a glimpse of it earlier and like those big green eyes in the water. I assume this is all model work at this point. I, I was curious like what all went into that because it was pretty impressive and the way it interacted with the ship was cool. Um, you know, it, it, I was thinking of Jaws and like all the work that went into that and all the all the shooting that they had to do at sea and how like notoriously difficult that was for Spielberg. And I was like wondering if there's any of that kind of stuff going on in this movie. 
So I know that they did a lot of it with model work. The The piece in the water, I didn't see anything specifically. I'm sure there's information. There's so much to cover with this movie. but Well, there's definitely the one that doesn't move, and it's just like still every time you see it. It's when they're right. walking around on the deck. It's probably in like a big tank. I have to assume there's at least a portion of it that is that existed that they were dragging through the water to get that yeah. effect right at the surface because it didn't probably look like a very a large really. model. If, you know, if, yeah. if it's a miniature, it might be like one quarter size or something, which is yeah. still quite large. And it also might just be kind of the front end of it. Just yeah. like the tip that we're seeing and the rest kind of isn't is not there. But um, regardless, it looked really good. And like you said, the design is very cool. The references just spin off forever with this with this material, the Nautilus and Captain Nemo and some of these touchstones, I guess. You mean, I read like people that who have referenced this or referenced the film, referenced, okay. you know, characters from the film, referenced the the architectural design of the film, because as you said last week, Around the World in 80 Days may have been known sort of as the start of steampunk, but so is this. This film especially uh, has a hand in in um, sort of yeah. solidifying steampunk as as a fashion or architectural design, like what genre, what it, genre kind of. Yeah, it's a genre of fiction, but it, it's it's much bigger than that, too, because obviously cosplay and like there are games that are sort of steampunk inspired, like it's a whole thing now. Right. It's definitely an early precursor, and I, I just as a little aside, I read a few a few of the references. Disneyland used the original sets as walkthrough attractions from 1955 to 1966. <laughs> Walt Disney World Resorts Magic Kingdom also had a dark ride named Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea Submarine and Voyage from 1971 to 1994, which consisted of a submarine ride complete with a giant squid attack and an arrangement of the main theme from the 1954 film playing on Captain Nemo's organ in the background. Where was that it, at? That was at Disney World Orlando. Man, I might have I might have gone on that. When it I was, was up until young. 94, so it's definitely possible if you went. Yeah, like, oh God, because I, 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 I don't know how old I was when I first went to Disney, but I was probably quite young. Yeah. And I know that there were like attractions and rides and shit that I went on as a kid that definitely were gone. Like when I was older and able to start like remembering this stuff better. Yeah. Uh, there's that some that I remember sounds as well. kind of familiar, man. Yeah. I definitely didn't go on this one, but there are some that like come and go. It's kind of cool. The culture around the rides too. And like, you know, get, again, getting into some more of these references, like the little mermaid ride, uh, Ariel's undersea adventure contains a silhouette of the Nautilus and a rock wall. Okay. At one of the parks. And the Tiki Bar, Trader Sam's Grog Grotto at Disneyland's Polynesian Village Resort serves a cocktail called the Nautilus. Um, now, to, to, to make an aside, a friend, we were on a shoot at Disney, and after we finished, uh, it was actually his birthday, so he was like, do you want to grab a drink? We went over to this place. I'd never been there before. It's very cool. It's like the entire bar is like underwater, and every once in a while, oh, wow. like the, the there's like these screens that look like you're looking out at like the sea inside of some sort of vessel, and you like go underwater and stuff. It's very cool. But I think that I ordered the Nautilus when I went. It's it served in like this drinking like we'll submarine vessel. Well, yeah, for for uh, posterity, uh, let's hope that I did. But I'm pretty sure that I did because my friend actually held on to the the boat, and I think he still has it. So anyway, it's served in like almost a submarine, and then it features a dive. Uh, um, the bar features a dive helmet and a mechanical squid tentacle that pours liquor behind the bar. Rad. So it's like all very <laughs> twenty thousand leagues themed. Hey and man, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm cool. I want to go to that if I come back. That's just in like Disney World. Yeah, you will. And what's cool is you don't even have to pay for a ticket because it's actually at one of their resorts. You just go to the resort and it's a bar that they have. Next there. time in Orlando, man, we should go to that. That'd Let's be cool. do it. I read that Goff and Disney based the Nautilus's design in the film on the interior of the fourth bridge, uh, F O R T H. 
And it's a cantilever railway bridge across the Firth of Forth in East Scotland. So it's a very interesting cool. design architecturally. And you can kind of look at it and see the piping and the way that it's shaped. Uh, okay. Uh, kind of inspired the look of it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it, it, it's like they leaned into that, making it look like a creature, which I think is also part of what makes it look so cool. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's got kind of a like narwhal, you know, fish, alien looking vibe to it. Yeah. I read too that the original novel described it as like a cigar shape and kind of like uh, for whatever this. Well, kind of a narwhal they, shape. I had the pointy nose. Exactly. Yeah. You know, fins and all kinds of stuff. And they went with more of an industrial look, like sort of yeah. more metal and, you know, jagged edges and things like that. Yeah, it looks yeah, it looks very metal. <laughs> yeah. Like like in metal horns kind of way. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the nuclear energy thing at this point cuz this is sort yeah. of where they're touring him around touring them around the ship. Um that weird yeah, room a, we only see that once where they bring him in there's all these like screens with like weird lights and yeah. and he looks he puts on the mask and like looks into the to the you know, I guess it's a nuclear submarine. I guess is what we're supposed to imagine. I don't know. I guess um, so, yeah. Like an early one maybe. The way the things sort of progress the scenes progress throughout are, are a little bit different because i feel like nemo doesn't trust the crew right away or at least arnox right away to show him around but yeah. in this he like almost right away takes him around shows him everything and yeah uh, you want to show the audience where you are he wanders around a yeah. little bit too while they're all like the entire crew just leaves leaves it basically un- unmanned and they come yeah. around and walk around inside look yeah well and that's again the out of order nature of it yeah. and if you're you see like the burial at sea it, scene exactly and you so that right away because that is what in the book made me start to like nemo and seeing like oh okay so he, he has he cares for these people he's not just this megalomaniac or whatever yeah he's got intentions outside of just ruling over them and being some king uh and oh, then man, they, they this... really they really are cult-like though in this movie too they are <laughs> they are uh yeah right uh and and Maybe we get some more of Nemo's motivation in this, in this, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still mysterious as to who he's referring to, but like Mm -hmm. his family was like tortured and killed. And, um, he, he definitely, uh, yeah, there's that whole sequence where they see the, the people on the island, um, which is probably in the next part of summary here. So maybe we should read that. Yeah. Nemo takes Nautilus to a penal colony where the prisoners are loading a munitions ship. Nemo, once a prisoner there, as were many of his crew, later rams the steamer, destroying it and its crew. Nemo tells Aranax that he has just saved thousands from death in war and that this hated nation tortured his wife and son to death while attempting to force him to reveal his discoveries. In Nemo's cabin, Ned and Conseil discover the map coordinates of Nemo's secret island base, Vulcania, where Nautilus is now heading. Ned throws messages with Vulcania's coordinates overboard in bottles in the hope of being rescued. Off the coast of New Guinea, Nautilus becomes stranded on a reef. Nemo allows Ned to go ashore with Conseil, ostensibly to collect specimens, while telling them to stay on the beach. Ned instead goes exploring for avenues of escape and finds human skulls posted on stakes. Ned runs back to Conseil and they row away, pursued by cannibals. Aboard Nautilus, the cannibals are repelled by electrical charges sent through its hull, and Nemo confines Ned for disobeying orders. This gets into the scene that I think that, you know, already was sort of an issue in the book, but then uh, becomes even more, I wouldn't even say more so, but becomes equally charged, uh, which is, you know, we get into this penal colony, which is interesting for Nemo and, and getting some of his backstory, but then quickly we move over to another island, which has these 
cannibals. Yeah. And they just happen to be very, very like coded as black people. And yeah. um, they're the only black people in the movie. And yeah. Um, yeah, they, they, yeah. I mean, just everything about it's problematic uh, yeah. by today's standards. Um, I, we don't have to like dwell on it too much, but like it, it was also gross when they get on the ship and then they get a let they get like shocked. And then like the way our characters are laughing at them and like, I don't know. Well, the music that's playing, I feel like, I don't know for sure, but the noises that they're making and stuff seem to be sort of over the top and kind of, um, you know, stereotypical. It was tough, man. It was tough to watch. Um, I, I, the other thing I will say is like, this looks like the exact blueprint that Spielberg followed in Raiders. Like this scene almost beat for beat was the same as Indiana Jones running out to hop on the hop on the uh, plane to escape in that in that moment, um, which you look back on that scene and it has not aged well either. Um, but I was like, wow, it looks like he was like remaking this scene. Yeah, a very well may have been. You know, they they set out to make that that this style of film. I think for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's tough, but like, it's also like uh, it's of the time. I guess I don't know. I don't. It's like you don't want to forgive it, but you also want to put it in context. So. You got to address it and yeah, sort of say, you know, it's it's where where they were, and uh, you know, we don't stand by it nowadays. But let's talk yeah. about more of this Nemo backstory. So they tortured him for information about his discoveries and that's why they killed his his son and and his wife which gives you i think that gives you a lot more motivation uh for nemo you know for a fact that he's now saying like well i had these discoveries and maybe he planned to use them for you know furthering the world but then he realizes like these people are capable of torturing his 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 wife and his son and he's like, what if these people did have access yeah. to my my weapons and they did use them in those ways? So you can see where he's like, I'm going to use this to further what I feel like is going to make the world better and then not give it to the masses because they can't be trusted because of people like this. Mm. Let's go all the way back to the food scene, too. Uh, there, it was like some some pretty funny food goofs going on with like, oh, you think that's, you know, lamb you're eating? It's actually, you know, whatever else. <laughs> Fish, and then it's fishy like, fish. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, some sort of weird thing, and they like spitting it out, and then like uh, the milk is actually milk from a sperm whale, which like, okay, yeah, um, it, it was it was funny, right? Um, and uh, you know, we see Esme the seal. That's the first mm-hmm. time we see Esme, um, which is super best adorable. Character. Yeah, best character. Um, in the movie. You know, I I so I don't know if you saw any of this, but I kept wondering like, were there animals harmed in this movie? Because it seems like some of this stuff was a little hairy. Hopefully not Esme. Um, there was definitely a point where they were grabbing onto some sea turtles and they looked pretty rough. Oh, that was, was like really what, rough. What yeah. are you doing to those sea turtles? Let them go. <laughs> like that cannot be uh, that cannot be advised. No, I was really hoping that they were fake, honestly. And but they looked very real. They looked very real. <laughs> so that was definitely didn't seem very cool to me. That that was pretty fucked yeah, up. Yeah, that's where I was like, were they in an aquarium or something? Like I don't know how they had access to all these animals for that whole sequence. They had yeah. like fish and these. I, I think it's and, like, safe to say there was probably some shots that were from an aquarium or some sort of large pool or something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like f- trying to figure out how they did it. It was pretty incredible. You know, the sharks, they, they would often have real sharks, but then every now and then they'd swap it out for a fake shark for the like when it was actually attacking. And that was kind of fun because that, that reminded me a little bit of Jaws. Yeah, I thought it was funny too, though, because the, the shark that comes into attack right away, being from an area that, you know, knows sharks very well, I knew that it was a nurse shark. I saw it and yeah. I was like, oh, that's a nurse shark. And yeah. I, in, in my reading, I saw that that was actually when they were filming in Jamaica. And I actually like, 
by happenstance this that that a nurse shark like rolled up on them and their reactions to it that treasure scene when when they're like trying to carry the chest that that actually really did happen and i guess they probably somehow were able to expand upon it but yeah. the initial reaction is somewhere in there like of of the actors being like oh my god there's a nurse shark here with us is like it's so funny because like we we know today how unlikely sh- like sharks in general are to attack people who are in the water um we yeah. see people swimming with sharks all the time especially not well underwater like down in the depths like because usually on it's the surface we know yeah. now that usually it's like a, a mistaken identity like they think that you're something else and that's usually when you get attacked on the surface um it depends on the kind of shark obviously but like when i saw that kind of shark swimming along i was like that's no threat but like you have to understand like the time and how little was known about it and especially for like the common like public like you see a shark in the water period, you are afraid. And, and then, you know, that's kind of the nature of this movie. And it's kind of nature of Jules Verne's book too. Um, Whenever they encounter creatures, it's like they immediately attack, attack the people and then they have to fight them. And it's just like, that's usually not what happens when you're out in nature. Like animals are afraid of people. Yeah. Usually. Yeah. You know, there are exceptions. Of course there are animals that will hunt you, but like um, it's a lot less of them than you think. One thing I really liked was the uh, there was the whole the whole way that they handled the um, divers getting off of the ship by going into this like chamber where they would pressure they would uh, it was like an air chamber right they would pressurize it there was the thing in the bottom even though they were underwater and I loved how it was like the air pressure is keeping the water down and they jumped yep. down into it and then they have to like seal that off before they can open the next door and I think usually they were pretty good about how that looked. Um, and I love that stuff because that's like all like how like, you know, you tend to imagine that kind of thing working. Um, and I thought it was very clever for its time um, and looked really great. And, and again, like it, they just did so much to convince me that like this is actually a submarine. They're actually underwater. Um, and, and it was all very effective. And, you know, yes, they all are all being goofballs the whole time and like, you know, t- being very cavalier with it, um, especially Ned. Um, you know, there's the whole sequence with him and Kinsei and they like find the treasure chest and then there's like a room full of treasure where Nemo's like, this mm-hmm. is just ballast. Ned seems like the like American ideal a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Like he's, he's this, um, over the top charismatic ladies, man, very into having money, right? Like he's very, um, obsessed with it. But, um, he also like, I, I, I thought there was some like, fun little criticisms of that too because the whole discussion about him becomes his heroism is small and he does little small acts but like his overall effect on society is not necessarily a good one and Nemo points that out later um and I think that's a fairly interesting conversation to have and and can even be looked at as kind of a criticism of uh of of some culture there of, of particularly American culture I don't even know that it was self-aware enough to to be a criticism of it but I think because because I think it was been. catering to the people of the time. I think that it was broadly appealing, and and people were like, "That's, that's no." But I mean, like how... Nemo specifically criticizes it. Oh like, yeah, yeah. I thought you were saying Ned as a commentary on. No, no, I'm saying Nemo later on is like you know, character like Ned. He's basically a storybook hero. Sure. But he does a he he does one small act of heroism in one moment, and in the next moment he might undo it. And he's like, the good only really matters if it's like a, a consistent effort over time on bigger scales. And then the professor says something like, oh, you just want perfectionism. And it's like, no, actually, he's kind of making some points, you know, like uh, let Nemo cook here a little bit. He's onto something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let Nemo cook. Uh, because I felt like the professor really didn't add a ton to this story, whereas I felt like in the book he was much more centered. 
Um, I did like the way that they were having like philosophical back and forth, yeah. between, you know, thinking about what, especially when you consider that Nemo's the one who's got his finger on the, the button per se of like nuclear energy or nuclear weaponry and things like that. And like his thinking in that responsible way. And again, this comes back to maybe some Oppenheimer stuff with, uh, you know, thinking about like what you are unleashing on the world, like what you mm. potentially are are starting yeah, it's kind of unknown like it's very vague what the what exactly his like little island and and his like volcano base what is the technologies he's referring yeah. to there we get the sense that they're just very advanced whether it, um, i mean whether he has actual nuclear energy that's the metaphor so, that's the metaphor i agree so he like in that way like nemo thinking of nemo not wanting to unlo- unleash this on the world see having the foresight to think like what what good can come of it and what come what bad can come of it yeah and then and then obviously like with even with um the end of the film like how his last words and and what the, what the professor says at the end with like saying you know maybe it's best that my journal didn't make it out anyway uh one more thing i wanted to mention before we move on is uh in the book i talked about how it seemed really cool that nemo had this organ that he was mm-hmm. playing underwater and I was like, Oh, the image of that is so cool. You know? And that this movie delivers on that. I thought it was totally. rad. Like he's, he's rocking out on the, on the organ, you know, he's got, he's got one really cool song he plays first, but then like later when he's about to um, sink that ship, I think he, he like transitions into a very ominous song, um, like famously. So all the characters are, like reacting to it too, like based on his mood, he'll be playing the organ differently. And then, and then the yeah. characters are like hearing it and they're like, Oh shit, yeah. he's like in a bad spot. Uh, you know, mentally, you can also tell. speaking of musical instruments, uh, Ned creates this like tortoise shell guitar yep. complete with like seashell tuning pegs. Hell yeah. He's able to tune it and play it as a guitar. He just whipped that up in his room. Um, <laughs> pretty wild. And he, he put the he goes to steal the, some stuff, puts it in there, hits somebody with it later. Like he's plays just so it. over the top the whole dang time, man. He's plays Popeye. It. I swear he's Popeye on in, like, somehow got into this movie. I can see it. Yeah. He plays it <laughs> alongside Esmeralda as well. Like he played when they're in the yeah, room. That was, that was really adorable, man. Like when, when he's doing the foot f- clapping and then El- yeah. Esme is doing it too. Yep. Um, man, you could tell there was a whole moment where they're like um, sneaking around and they sneak into Nemo's uh, quarters and they're trying to, I forget what they were trying to do. They're like, trying they're, to nav- they're trying to figure and, like, out where Volcano is or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And Esme comes in and starts barking at them basically. And they, um, they start feeding Esme, you know, cigars, but it's definitely like little anchovies or something, but yeah. um, yeah. they're acting like they're just feeding this thing cigars. Cast members carried herring in their pockets to reward Esmeralda the sea lion after their scenes with her. Director Richard Fleischer was especially amused when the distinguished James Mason had to reach into his pocket after a shot. Fleischer said the cast smelled like the Fulton fish market. (laughs) I bet, man. I was thinking like uh, there's a show I really like where they do behind the scenes on VFX all the time. Um, Corridor Crew, it's a YouTube channel. And I was like, man, I don't think they've ever done this movie and they should because I bet there's a lot to tell here maybe they have i don't know let me know if they have done it they may have i would like I, to watch it. i don't watch as much as i used to with them but do they do special effects or are they mostly yeah. doing visual effects they do both um they yeah. definitely will uh occasionally and some of my favorites honestly is when they go back to like really old special effects before there were cgi and go like right. how did they pull this off and like talk about some of the like early 
magic tricks that were that were pulled off because um, some of that stuff is really astounding yeah and just looking at this movie i think there would be there would be some stuff they could look at right with like the underwater sequences and like there's a lot of really cool sequences yeah there. i i want to talk about the pipe organ because you brought it up in 1969 yeah. that pipe organ uh which had been displayed in disneyland was redressed and now resides in the ballroom of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. A duplicate wow. was constructed for the ballroom of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom Haunted Mansion, which opened in 1971. And over a decade later, another duplicate was built for Tokyo Disneyland. So you can go to Disney and really it sounds like either of the parks in America and see the Oregon or at least a reproduction of it. Wow, man, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, and just the, another thing that I was, that was thinking of when you were talking about filming underwater, another important aspect of filming that they were doing with CinemaScope is using anamorphic lenses, which basically compresses the image so that it can fit onto a film strip that then can be shot through uh, in projection, can be shot through and projected and molded back into the, the widescreen effect with a lens on the projector. So thinking of the fact that like you're underwater, you have to have an underwater rig for the camera. Then you have to have an anamorphic lens, which is, you know, a very specific specialty lens, which at the time there was only one set in existence and Disney had to be, they were using the only set that existed of anamorphic lenses from, from what I could, could find. Um, so you're underwater with all that giant gear and there's film actively going through the camera and you can't load the film underwater. You got to go to the surface, yeah. load the film, go back underwater, start the record. It's just unbelievably difficult and i just you know taking take for granted i guess how difficult some of the stuff that we do today used to be yeah i mean because you're pioneering it right it's like yeah. it had barely been done at all yeah i'm sure so you're like trying to figure out ways to do things that hadn't been done before it's this, and, yeah, it's, that, that's always cool film is this really fascinating blend of science and art because of mm -hmm. like the the scientific and the technical side of of capturing this kind of stuff it's all in service of the art and like what needs to be told on on screen and i, I just think it's so cool to, to see like th through film history people innovating to try to get the emotion of the scene or to try to convey something different to the audience um which is ultimately comes back down to art so yeah, yeah. i i just find this stuff fascinating well, and you look all the way forward to like James Cameron today and the, and the stuff that he's pioneering with the Avatar films, whether or not, you know, how you feel about those movies, like it's undeniable that he is like, again, like pioneering yeah. the way special effects work, the way shooting underwater is now like it, it's it's wild, the stuff that he was able to develop for this most recent one. Like I haven't even seen the movie, to be honest, but like I've seen some of the behind the scenes stuff because that's just really fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. It's incredible stuff. Um, there's a, a moment where, where Ned decides to drink uh, this, I assume, pure ethanol <laughs> that is like has like a fish in it or something. And he's like, we could just drink the grog. Um, not a good idea. Those at home <laughs> don't drink pure fucking 100%, you know, ethanol. You'll it's, burn uh, your esophagus out. It's, it's not. Yeah, not the same as drinking is drinking uh, just a really strong alcoholic beverage. So. This last bit of summary here, a warship fires upon Nautilus, which descends into the depths, attracting a giant squid. After an electric charge fails to repel the creature, Nemo and his men surface during a storm to dislodge it. Nemo is caught by one of the long tentacles, and Ned, having escaped from captivity, fatally harpoons the squid and saves Nemo when he is pulled into the sea. Having had a change of heart, Nemo wants to make amends with the world. As Nautilus nears Vulcania, Nemo finds the island surrounded by warships, with marines having disembarked. 
Nemo rushes ashore via underwater passage to activate a time bomb in order to destroy any evidence of his discoveries, but is shot and mortally wounded as he returns on board, navigating the submarine to a safe distance from Volcania. Nemo announces that he will be taking the Nautilus down for the last time. His crew declare that they will accompany their captain in death. Aranax, Kansai, and Ned are confined to their cabins while Nautilus's crew retreat to their own at Nemo's instructions. Nemo escapes and surfaces the submarine, striking a reef in the process, causing Nautilus to flood. Nemo dies while viewing his beloved undersea domain through the hole's viewport. Aranax tries retrieving his journal, but the urgency of their escape obliges Ned to knock him unconscious and carry him out. Aboard Nautilus's skiff, the three companions, along with Esmeralda, Nemo's pet sea lion, witness Volcania explode. As Nautilus sinks, Nemo's last words to Aranax echo, There is hope for the future, and when the world is ready for a new and better life, all this will someday come to pass in God's good time. I'll back up to where they they get struck and they start sinking. I thought that was an interesting sequence. Some really, uh, really cool stunts being done. Um, some of those sets being flooded with water. Uh, I just know from watching behind the scenes stuff with like the Titanic, how how dangerous some of that stuff is. Um, a lot of wet scenes. I'm sure that were kind of hell to shoot. We see the engine having to be like repaired on the fly. There's a lot of cool stuff like that where I was like, uh, I, I was impressed with the the way they were able to pull it off, but also with like Nemo as a character and how hands-on he was and he's he's such an interesting character right like overall i like him i think uh even though there are elements to his personality that definitely are not super likable and he seems to have a death cult that followed him under this under <laughs> that's this actually submarine. very true yeah yeah he, he definitely uh maybe he didn't ask them to but it was implied that they <laughs> needed to because they knew some dark, some secrets yeah. um he i think he questions the status quo which is something i like about him like i like yeah. the kinds of questions he's bringing up in this time period um, so that, that makes him likable to me. I definitely think that he's maybe let a little bit of the power go to his head. It's very clear. Yeah. It's kind of the mad scientist archetype that we talked about, like back with Frankenstein and stuff sure. like that, like that is yeah. pr- cropped up a time and time again, which is cool. Like that's an interesting character type, and especially if you're going to do something different with it, which I think they do here. Um, in the sense that like, again, this was a time where I think people were going, holy shit, look at what science has unleashed into the world and all of a sudden the threat of nuclear war was real and people were starting to it i'm sure it took some time to like actually settle into people's like minds like what they had done with the atomic bomb so i think that was very present right and i think that's that's kind of the subtext a lot of this conversation about scientific advancement and how like i think one day we'll be ready for it but not yet and we need to be patient um, I think there's some good messaging there. Um, I think there is a little bit of just like hesitancy. People wanting to say, hey, let's pump the brakes a little bit on some of this stuff. Um, and I, I can get that. That that uh, is understandable, I think. So I also wanted to talk about our squid here because we talked, we mentioned this in the in the book. It was a cuttlefish. And mm-hmm. I was like, I always thought it was a squid. Well, I think that's from this movie where it is a giant squid. Um, and just to get a little bit nerdy about cephalopods, um, you know, some of the most like famous ones would be like octopus squid and cuttlefish and they're all like similar but you know different in in, in some ways squid and cuttlefish are i think more similar um you know i think they both have 10 arms um the squid in particular have two that are longer um not tentacles by the way uh something i had to learn and and writing my undersea book that i'm working on um 
those are arms. Um, tentacles are a very specific kind of thing. Um, and, and like octopus have zero tentacles. They have eight arms. Um, so is, yeah, it's, it's a little surprising because I feel like it's a, a commonly misused term to apply to certain things. Sure. Um, what has tentacles then? The main difference that I'm seeing is that arms have suction cups along the entire length. Tentacles tend to only have suction cups on the ends. Wow. Um, so that's, that's one major difference, I guess. It's, it's interesting because like there there is a lot of inter- interchangeability you'll you'll see especially in the way people use the terms um anyway cuttle sh- uh, cuttlefish versus squid also there's a lot of similarities there for one cuttlefish have like a longer like head and sort of body um and they tend to have a little bit shorter uh tentacles or arms that just kind of come out the front um they they use a lot of propulsion underwater with like air jets um, they're also known more for their ability to change uh, color and texture, which is a very cool thing that they can do to make themselves camouflage. Um, some squid can also do this, though. So there's a lot of like carryover there, too. Um, but I just thought it was interesting, right, just to switch it from, from the cuttlefish to the squid. I do think giant squid are a real thing. Um, probably not this big, but there is some actual giant squid that have been you know, seen underwater so maybe they were touching on it for that reason, whereas I don't think there are giant cuttlefish that are nearly this big. So uh, maybe it's a little more realistic to have it be a squid, I guess. And this is the scene that that people remember too, right? Like totally. this is the thing that through cultural osmosis, you remembered possibly being a massive part of the of the book. And like, yeah. this is what I think of when I think of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea now. And what really well executed scene, a lot of tense moments there. And, you know, the idea to do it at night during a storm makes it way more tense. Um, you know, it's also a moment for Ned to, like, jump in the water and just start stabbing tentacles to save yeah. Nemo and stuff. Um, and that's, that's that brings along the conversation that we have about, like, Ned saving the day here, right? And he saves mm-hmm. Nemo. Um, and Nemo's like, this, that doesn't really matter. It's just, like, one small act. Um but of course, like it kind of does, right? You save Nemo, who, you know, if Nemo's going to go on to continue to do good and the way he takes it, he needs to have been saved. Um, but also, I think there's some value in pointing out that it's just, you know, in one, one like heroic moment in a life that is otherwise not always doing the right thing doesn't necessarily make up for it all right as much as we kind of like i think it, it, uh, there's sort of an ideal that like oh just one good deed you know kind of wipe it all out but it's like no nah, it's not always the case and yeah. in fact if you want to actually make a difference it needs to be sustained over time and nemo starts talking about that which i think is uh which i think it, it was kind of surprising to hear that in this movie but i liked it yeah a lot of this stuff is surprising to hear also in a disney movie you know yeah i, I think that some of the more adult themes like this is clearly i think a film that's kind of catered towards ki- children but somewhere yeah. in the middle somewhere and then the middle. Ad- adults definitely can get some some out of it and maybe that's you know disney all over maybe that's always been the case but right. this definitely felt like a, a, a deviation from some of the norm which has been had been like really heavily children focused yeah. so nemo just catches a random random bullet yeah. when he's out there he's getting shot at like a million times they have s- stormtrooper syndrome <laughs> i was gonna say they gotta be the early stormtroopers right because they they're shooting fish in a barrel they're shooting yeah. down into a valley basically yeah ned goes on top and he starts waving at him like hey it's me and they shoot so many bullets at him and they miss him every single time and he just every goes time. back down he's got such plot armor and then ne- nemo goes down and he just catches one stray 
and, he and then he's like, yeah, as soon as he gets down, like the whole, that whole sequence is very odd because like he's acting kind of like he's not hurt. He's giving orders, but then like he starts like staggering. And then I think like the crew quickly realizes he is hurt. And there's like no conversation about it. There's no discussion. He's just like stumbling around and then he goes under down to the like down to another part of the ship. And then there's like a bunch of the crew standing around just staring at him. And he like takes that to mean like they're ready. So <laughs> they that come staring down, moment like, was very cult like, like you mentioned before. Yeah, that was very cult like, right? And he's like, moment. he's like, we're going down. You know, everybody go to your and and like I think just the one guy who's like the spokesman for the entire crew apparently. It's like we're with you. And he's like, all yeah. right, that means everybody's re- willing to die just because I randomly got shot. I have no doctor, so I don't even know what it hit and what it didn't. He yeah. just got shot, and he's like, "Well, I'm dying." Um, and yeah, if you don't do anything about it, I guess you're gonna die. That's that's fair. Yeah. Um, and so he's just like, I, "I'm gone," and if I'm going down, so is the Nautilus and every single person on the ship. We're all dying together. Yeah, and drowning. That's like, mm, by the way, yeah, 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 maybe maybe not the best here, Nemo. Um, he's this is the the taking it way too far moment, right? Yeah, it's also like a horrible death that he's put, inflicting on all of these people. Yeah, um, and Fucking then terrifying, including Esmeralda or whatever the the seal's name is. Yeah, so you're just Esme, gonna let Esmeralda. These, yeah, you could just release that that character into the wild, yeah. and things will be nice. I maybe but, I, I guess the 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 subtext there is maybe there was an agreement for these cult like crew members. That if they're going to be a part of his crew, then they never get to share what they what they see here. Yeah, they, they will take it to the grave with them, essentially, um, which that's pretty dark. <laughs> totally. Uh, very, very weird, man. Such a such a such a weird. Thing. And these are all people supposedly that were also sort of prisoners like he was. I yeah, I, I heard that in the in the summary you read, but I don't know. Maybe that was said in the movie. Yeah, I was unclear where the crew came from and why they were so devoted to him. So there's actually, interestingly, going to be a Disney Plus show releasing this sometime this year, supposedly called Nautilus. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. This has gone through a lot of iterations, but they've been trying to do a new remake or prequel or readaptation in some way since 2009. Originally, it was it was announced that Joseph McGinty Nickel was going to direct, and then that kind of fell through. I think he was the person who worked on Terminator Terminator Salvation with Sam Worthington. Um, that fell through. Then, what I really want to talk about is David Fincher announced plans to direct in 2010 Whoa. after wrapping up The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. No way. Has yeah. he ever done a movie like this? Like that? I mean, um, like a not, big not like in a big studio movie? like this, big studio system movie. Not I, well. Alien, I guess. Him. Alien 3, maybe? Oh, but, you're right. Alien 3. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, but anyway, he decided to leave this. Um, eventually, just things fell through. He wanted Brad Pitt to play Ned Land. Uh, things fell through. I guess Brad Pitt turned it down. And by 2013, he dropped out to direct the adaptation of Gone Girl, which is another okay. project that we've covered. We've covered, yeah. Yeah. Definitely in his wheelhouse. Um, I, I see him as this like dark crime director, but I guess that's not always the case, right? I mean, obviously, Fight Club, which we covered, yeah, was iconic. Fincher like a big, also a big sci-fi movie would be interesting. Although I guess he did it only three. That's true. Yeah, but that was really early when he didn't have yeah. a lot of say, and and there the, was a lot that went on Final with that movie. Cut and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be getting a new series supposedly. I I tried okay. to find. They said sometime in twenty twenty three. We're getting late in twenty twenty three. You know. I mean, but yeah, we'll see. Totally support the strike. 
yeah, true. have to recognize that that can delay things Could and, and play a part, things that sure. were supposed to be coming out might not come out now. Depends on if they still have filming to do for it, I assume. Right. Um, but yeah, anything that was supposed to come out in the next year or two, I'm always like, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't yeah. know. You know, it, it's a bummer, but ultimately for, for everyone to, to get on board and, and for the writers and the actors to get what they're owed and, totally. you know, for the foreseeable future, it's necessary. So, yeah, with the yeah, there's a lot of reasons for it. And uh, I definitely yeah. totally support it. Another thing that I think is interesting to, to talk about is critics of the time and then critics now looking back mm -hmm. at this film, because as you can probably imagine, this is a very important film for you know genre fiction and genre films and this era of filmmaking around the time of the film's release harrison's report wrote that expertly utilizing the cinemascope medium and the technicolor photography he walt disney and his staff has fa have fashioned a picture that is not only a masterpiece from the pro production point of view but also a great entertainment the kind that should go over in a big way with all types of audiences and then more contemporary film critic Steve Biodrowski said that the film is far superior to the majority of genre efforts from this period with production design and technical effects that have dated hardly at all. Um, also, he also added that the film may occasionally succumb to some problems inherent in the source material. The episodic nature does slow the pace, but the strengths far outweigh the weakness, making this one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. I mean, especially in the scope of history, I, I, it's hard to argue that. I agree a little bit about the, the pacing was a problem for me, as I've already talked about. The movie dragged yeah. on a bit. But yeah, man, I can see it. Um, this is this is a cool one. I'm definitely glad I've seen it now. I think all that's left for us to do is to to vote on which is better, the movie yeah. or the book. Um, which honestly, I um, I had this part of my notes, and I have like a question mark there because I was going to decide on the fly, <laughs> depending on how I felt, because it's pretty close for me. Um, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I'm going to take the film here, and it's because Jules Verne's book felt like something that was doled out, as we found out uh in the research from the book it was something that was doled out slowly over time and it kind of feels that way it kind of feels like it's almost like disjointed at times like certain parts don't connect together to to make a whole and i think the film takes a lot of what jules verne did well in the story and like presses it all together and makes it this cohesive story now it doesn't feel as grand in scale as the story Jules Verne's story is like so yeah. globe trotting. It right? does not feel <laughs> yeah. like we went 20,000 leagues in the film. I'll say that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. by the way, I looked up what a league is, and it's considered to be three nautical miles at sea. Therefore, if they traveled 20,000 leagues, they would have traveled about 68,350 miles, enough to circle the Earth almost two and a half times. Yeah. Um, and it's like they're on that ship for, I think, years in the book. Yeah. And they uh, go to the Arctic and they go to a lot of different locations, whereas here I feel like we saw a lot of tropical and stuff on the ocean. Um, so, yeah, for those reasons, I think that the, the book has a lot going for it and it feels larger in scale and it feels really important because of the time period that it came out for for science fiction. And, and that foresight that we talk about in science fiction sometimes that eventually leads to creating some, you know, everyday devices and things that we have uh, yeah. currently in our time period. But... The film did something for me that I was I, I just didn't have very high expectations going in. And with yeah. all the film history and with seeing these really this really fun, interesting movie with some problematic stuff that hold it back for me. But it, it took me on a journey and it, especially like when it comes to pushing forward the, the technical aspect of something that I, you know, see in my everyday life working in film. Um, yeah. I always feel like that that has a lot of weight for me. Yeah, man, uh, I get it. And uh you know, I, I want to give it up for Jules Verne. Jules Verne obviously uh, is one of the forefathers of science fiction. 
and we talked about that in our previous episode. Such an incredible writer, um, such an important writer um, in the history of the genre that I love, right? Um, such a cool backstory, too, for this book, his life. Um, the reading experience of it left me wanting a little bit. Um, the characters were a little thin. The the adventure of just like seeing all of this different underwater stuff was fun, but not the most engaging stuff I've read. There was a lot of technical details that bogged it down. So there's enough holding that book back for me to where I think I am going to give it to the film here as well. Um, I think they did some smart stuff in like making a more coherent story to fit in a two hour movie, even if I did have some pacing problems throughout. Um, the special effects are just astounding. What they were able to pull off at the time is amazing. Um, you know, performances were cool. I, I still didn't love everything that was done story-wise. I have misgivings about the movie in general. Um, it's not one of my favorite movies. I'm not going to be like recommending people go out and watch it today. Yeah. Um, however, it had a good. I had a good time with it. I'm glad I've seen it now, and it's a good piece of film history to slot in. Just like we talked about with with Jules Verne's novel, is a a piece of uh, you know literary history. I really appreciate both, but I'm going to give it to the film here. So it sounds like we're together on this one. Uh, film at least slightly better than the book. Um, yeah. If you want to know what we're going to cover next, stick around to the end of the episode. We're going to reveal it. It was recently voted on by our patrons. So excited about that. And if you wanted to help support us, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. We have a bunch of different tiers there, but for just $2 a month, you can get our bonus content, which we put out monthly. And that usually includes something adaptation adjacent, but we tend to have fun over there and experiment and take suggestions from our patrons about what they'd like to hear. Also, if you like this episode, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. And if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for doing that. Hello. Uh, give us a like on the video and subscribe. Um, we're hoping to get to 1,000 subscribers. Um, that's like a, a, a key metric that YouTube uses to decide whether or not they're going to allow you to monetize your videos at all. So we'd like to be able to get to that point. Um, so make sure to subscribe if you aren't already. And thank you for uh, for checking us out. And make sure to connect with us on all other social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at ink to film We're also on TikTok and YouTube shorts. We're out there. So look for those. And oh, uh, I'll add a couple. Um, we have a Discord, which um, is is a good way to interact with us directly. We, we get in there and talk with our listeners. Um, if you would like the link for that, just let me know on any of those apps. Like, reach out to us and I'll send you a, an invite link and you can use that to join up. Um, we'd love to have some more people on there. Um, it's, it's fun. The other thing is if anybody's on Blue Sky... Um, which is another, uh, you know, competitor that is propped up for now that Twitter has become X. Um, I am on Blue Sky, but also I recently made an Ink to Film Blue Sky account, which I'll, I will link in the show notes. We'd love to have you connect with us on there. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. All that's left to do is to announce our very next project, which was voted on by our patrons. And that is Train Spotting by Irvine Welsh. Or, or Irvine Welsh. I got it right here. Nice. Um Excited to read this thing. I've heard that there is a lot of Scottish jargon in here that we're probably going to like struggle with. So I'll be curious to see how that goes. Um, maybe jargon is not the right word, but like uh, dialect in sure. there um, that, that might be difficult for us. But I'm also planning to go to Scotland next year. So I'm like, maybe I need to start learning it. And uh, that way I'll be ready to go. Definitely. Yeah. Big fan of the movie, uh, especially when I, when I saw it originally. So I'm excited to dig into it. I remember liking it. I saw it a long time ago and like, it's one of those movies that I just don't remember very well. So, like, I'll be very curious to revisit it and, like, 
especially after reading the book, I'm sure I'll have a whole new appreciation for it. So I'm excited to get into that one. Uh, and we hope you join us for it. Until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.